Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Heather Conley. Uh, we welcome you. Uh, this is our first full-fledged event in the new year. Uh, and I couldn't think of a better way to start our programming with, in some ways, the way we ended it with a conversation on Brexit. On Friday um, it was a historic day for both the European Union and the United Kingdom, and a new day has dawned for the United Kingdom. And uh, we're so delighted to have Dr. Liam Fox here, a frequent visitor to Washington, and I think no one can argue a great transatlanticist, uh, to help us understand the foreign and security policy implications of the UK's withdrawal from the EU and what a global Britain will mean uh, for the transatlantic relationship and the UK's relationship around the world. In 1992, Dr. Fox was elected as a member of a parliament. Uh, he has served with distinction as both Secretary of State for Defense from 2010 to 2011 and most recently Secretary of State for International Trade from 2016 to 2019. I think uh, there is a there's a continuum between defense and trade. Uh, it's all about uh, what you can afford, your past or getting ready for the future. So I think it is perfect. And with your applause, please join me in welcoming Dr. Liam Fox. Well, thank you very much, Heather, and it's a real pleasure to be back again at CSIS. As you correctly say, last Friday, the United Kingdom left the European Union after two generations of membership and entered what our Prime Minister Boris Johnson called a new dawn in our country's history. Now, as some of you may know, I campaigned to leave the European Union, and I believe it was the right decision for our country. For me, it was primarily about sovereignty and our ability to control our own destiny. When I was asked on an American TV program what I meant when I said I was a constitutional lever, I asked how Americans would feel if there was a court sitting in Mexico City or Ottawa that had precedence over the Supreme Court and American lawmakers couldn't change any decision that they took. And the presenter's face said it all to me at that time. But for us, it was even more than that. In the referendum on European Union membership, the one thing we were not able to vote for was the status quo. It wasn't on offer because the EU has set itself on a course towards ever closer union, which will mean ever greater constitutional, political and economic integration. Because the logical end point of ever closer union is union. And that is not the destiny of the United Kingdom. And our government, has now honoured the promise that we made to the British people to carry out their wish clearly expressed in the democratic referendum. But let me be very clear on this point. This does not mean that Britain will enter into an era of withdrawal or isolationism. In fact, quite the opposite. We want to see a truly global Britain working with our friends and allies to promote our common values and objectives across the whole world in our common interest. We will retain our permanent seat on the UN Security Council. We will continue to be core members of the G7 and the G20. We are founder members of the World Trade Organization and will take up our independent seat there. We will push our agenda for free trade and liberalization. 
We'll still be central players in the IMF, the World Bank, the OECD. We will be at the heart of NATO, its second biggest military spender, and we'll work hand-in-hand on security, prosperity and investment with the United States, our close and special partner. Now, we will, of course, continue to work in close cooperation with our friends and neighbours in Europe, both those inside the European Union and those outside. We will seek new trading and security arrangements with the European Union to ensure the safety and prosperity for our citizens that we all want to see. We continue to face common threats and challenges in the global economy and in global security. Increases in non-tariff barriers, particularly by G20 countries, combined with trading frictions between China and the United States, have resulted in a slowdown in the growth of global trade to a mere 1.2% this year less than half the rate of global GDP growth and an inversion of the normal ratio. And threats to our security come from state actors and non-state actors alike, as we saw yesterday on the streets of London. And they're manifested in traditional threat environments and through the war of the invisible enemy in cyberspace. So let me just briefly take three of the state threats that we face. Russia remains alienated from the international community and poses a substantial risk to regional and global security. Repeated, persistent and targeted cyber attacks on individuals and institutions provide a daily threat which, if anything, is increasing. Putin's insistence in following the old Soviet concept of a near abroad, in other words, an effective veto on the foreign and security policies of its immediate geographical neighbours is incompatible with our concept of international law. Similarly, the belief that the protection of Russian citizens abroad is the preserve of the Russian state, not the legal and constitutional systems under which they live, provides a constant threat to neighbouring states, especially those where large numbers reside. And let's not forget that talks of threats to Russian citizens, usually fabricated in the Kremlin, is often the pretext for intervention. Now, all of this comes wrapped in the old Soviet doctrine of reflexive control, that is, to take advantage of your opponent's predispositions to cause them to make choices that favour your preferred course of action. And all backed up by upgraded military forces and an increased willingness to intrude and test NATO's airspace and territorial waters. And those who think that the Russian threat is not a real and persistent one should talk to our friends in Ukraine or Georgia, both of whom continue to have illegal occupations of their sovereign territory. Next, Iran is now replacing the Arab-Israeli conflict as the primary cause of instability in the Middle East. But we should be careful not to see it as simply a regional security problem, as its effects are spread widely and Iran's toxicity is felt well beyond its geographical neighbourhood. Even as European countries sought ways to try and finance trade with the Iranian regime, Iranian-inspired terror groups increased their activities across the continent. In the Netherlands, two Iranian diplomats were expelled in June 2018 for plotting political assassinations in that country. A bomb plot to target a rally of opposition groups in Paris was foiled by French intelligence. And in the UK, it was revealed by the Daily Telegraph newspaper, no less, last summer, 
that a terrorist cell with links to Iran had been caught stockpiling tons of ammonium nitrate explosive on the outskirts of London at a secret bomb factory. Iran has been a consistent supporter of US-designated Palestinian terrorist organizations, including Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas. Lebanese Hezbollah remains Iran's primary terrorist proxy, and they destabilize Iraq through their manipulation of Shia militia groups. Through its proxies, Iran continues both direct attacks on Israel itself and on Israeli targets in other parts of the world. And they give effect to the hatred of the supreme leader for the very existence of the Israeli state. Iran's long-term aim is the destabilizing of its neighbors with the aim of establishing a regional hegemony. Their ballistic missile tests that are still, let's remember, being carried out breach UN Security Council Resolution 2231, and the Khamenei regime continues to brutally repress its own people with widespread human rights abuses. Billions of dollars, unfrozen by the JCPOA, have enabled Iran to support the Assad regime in Syria, fund Hezbollah's terror activities, and support the Houthis in the tragic conflict in Yemen. The IRGC is complicit in the global drugs trade and has supported numerous terrorist acts against the regime's opponents across the world, including in South America. Illegal maritime actions in the Gulf pose a threat to global oil supplies and therefore to the global economy. A regional conflict could quickly become a global economic crisis and the recent attacks on Saudi oil installations show how emboldened the uh, Iranian regime and the IRGC have become. The current approach to Iran has not worked and has, of course, led to the current maximum pressure strategy by the Trump administration. The 12 points set out by Secretary of State Pompeo could form the basis of a grand bargain, but only if a way can be found to enable ordinary Iranians to prosper from any liberalization of trade rather than simply pumping more money into the Khamenei regime. The biggest problem for Iran's regional neighbors and, I'm afraid, the international community is the near-complete breakdown of trust. It is almost impossible to believe what the regime says, leaving their actions alone to be judged for their intent. Khamenei has been a consistent uh, proponent in his views for decades about the values of the Iranian Revolution, his detestation of the United States, and the United Kingdom, and his contempt for the existence of the State of Israel. And the rest of the world needs to match this fanaticism with more consistency and greater resolve. Thirdly, China. As well as possessing a large nuclear arsenal, China has invested heavily in its conventional force capability. Its acquisitive policy towards territories in the South China Sea and the construction of military bases in defiance of international agreements is creating a potential security flashpoint in the region. Frequent cyber attacks, often designed to acquire intellectual property, are widespread despite official denials. The increasingly nationalist rhetoric and the tightening grip of the Chinese Communist Party is concerning, expressed very clearly in the national intelligence law that came into effect in July 2017 that requires individuals, 
organizations and institutions to assist the state security apparatus to carry out a range of intelligence work. In many ways, Chinese nationalism may prove to be a greater adversary than communist Soviet Union did. Of course, China remains a source of economic opportunity to Western nations. But the hope of some that greater economic interaction would produce domestic political changes now seems hugely over-optimistic. We should not be blinded by the size of China's potential markets. China is not now, nor likely at any foreseeable future point to become, a more liberal or democratic state. Indeed, through programs such as Belt and Road, it, seem, it seeks greater strategic advantage, though so far with some mixed results. We would be better to accept that the Chinese strategy is to make the world more tolerant of and more permissive towards totalitarian regimes. We must respond by making the world a better and safer place for democratic and free nations whose underpinning stability is based on the rule of law. That is why our military and foreign policies must have a clear political direction based upon our own values and principles. It is essential for global progress and global stability that it's our values that triumph in the 21st century. Now let me turn briefly before we begin our conversation to NATO. NATO has been the cornerstone of European security since its inception. The means by which the United States, with the world's largest military budget, is tethered to the continent. Recent focus on capability and tensions over the budgetary contributions of some European members has tended to overshadow the political role of NATO, a role that will be of even greater importance to the United Kingdom following Brexit. In the Cold War, we understood that the military role of NATO was to stop Soviet tanks sweeping across the European plains. But we also knew that the political role was to stop the spread of Soviet communism into Western democracies. So what is the political role of NATO today? It's about understanding the regional political instabilities in NATO's backyard that could result in security contagion. It should be about understanding and potentially diffusing political tensions before a military response becomes necessary. Modern warfare does not have the same geographical limitations that it did in the past. Both space and cyberspace can produce security threats that traditional views of territorial integrity do not match. It's essential that NATO is able to anticipate and, if necessary, respond to threats in these environments. And it's also necessary to have a clear understanding about where seemingly distant threats might produce security risks at home. The events of 9-11 and many since that have shown that the concept of over there is increasingly out of date in a world where globalization produces interdependence and vulnerabilities to an extent and immediacy that we've not known before. In an era where military intervention has increasingly been about stabilization, 
We also need to understand the interaction between political, civilian and NGO groups to be able to maximize NATO's influence and to prevent the organization simply becoming a troop provider. Finally, we do need to understand the competing geostrategic visions that will, depending on our relative success, shape our world for better or for worse. I know that there are those who take a purely pragmatic view of global power politics, but I believe we can learn lessons again from the Cold War. We did not want simply to contain Soviet military aggression, but to promote an entirely different prospectus based upon our deeply held values of freedom, democracy and respect for individual rights. It's time for us to put that political cause again at the centre of our policy making. There are those, for example, who say that ideology doesn't matter and that, for example, in the case of China, it's simply about constraining their military reach. I disagree. I believe that who and what we are are because of our values. We enjoy our freedom based on the rule of law, with authority exercised by the people through a democratic system and underpinned by our concept of the rights of each individual. Why should we not want all our fellow human beings to benefit from the same? That truly is a moral purpose in public policy. As Britain leaves the European Union with a sense of confidence and empowerment, these are just some of the global challenges we will face. But doing so in cooperation with like-minded friends and allies is ultimately our best and safest way forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for those very comprehensive thoughts. Um, I thought we timed this visit perfectly. Prime Minister Johnson gave a major speech today. Um, Foreign Secretary Rob gave some remarks uh, to Parliament today, and he described the three pillars of Global Britain. I want to make sure I have them right, so you, you feel free to correct me. The three pillars well, are. I oh, weren't there. All right. Well, this is what I heard. Um, first pillar is a good ally. Um, and we'll talk about NATO and particularly the U.S. in a moment, to defend free trade, something that you were working on very hard uh, as Secretary for International Trade, and then doing good in the world, that those are sort of the three pillars of, of global Britain. So if I may, let me start with NATO, since where you ended. And I want to first give you a shout-out and then a question. So when you were Defense Secretary, um, you created a group called the Northern Group, and this was actually revolutionary. Any of, of our audience that comes to events with, that we have here about the Arctic knows how strongly I feel about preparedness in the Arctic. But you brought together 12 countries in, within the northern group, a broader group, the Neo-Hanseatic League, if I can put it a different way. And that's still going strong today. And you were concerned about the north. Does NATO need a northern flank? Does NATO need to be postured for the Arctic, something that it would say it is not ready to do today? Yes, it does. It did then, and it does now. Um, so I was very keen at that time um, 
to show that we were not just a member of the European Union, but understood that we were a northern European country, that where the Atlantic lay on one side and the North Sea and the Baltic on the other, that we did understand our closeness geographically and politically to the Baltic states and the Nordic states. Um, the, the role that we took in the liberation of those um, Baltic states more than once um, as part of our historical heritage. And of course, we were seeing a lot of Russian incursion in the north. We've seen uh, increased uh, Russian uh, patrols uh, of their, their submarine fleet. Uh, we've seen incursions into Norwegian and to British airspace. And, and it's very clear that they are probing us there. Um, uh, my concern was for a long time was we were concentrating too much on Central Europe geographically and not on our more vulnerable points because I took the view, and I still take the view, that what Russia was trying to create was an arc of instability around continental NATO from Norway through the Baltics all the way down um, through uh, southern uh, Europe and, and the Balkans right down to the Caucasus. And that's, that for me was, was was pretty much how they responded to their concept of encirclement. So yes, I believe it's still a very important element. I'm glad we've got the increased uh, troop forces uh, in the Baltic states. But I think given what I was talking about earlier, about um, how the Russian pretenses about threats to their citizens is often uh, a precursor to uh, intervention, we do need to worry about those states like Estonia and Latvia, who've got high numbers of Russian citizens living inside their borders. Uh, the UK is the lead nation for the NATO battalion in Estonia, so taking a leadership uh, role there. Do you think NATO uh, is well postured uh, to defend uh, its members? Uh, very vulnerable, not only northeastern uh, flank. I would argue the vulnerabilities now look increasingly in the south, in the Black Sea region and elsewhere. Are, is NATO well postured? And is the UK considering increasing contributions in the eastern flank? Well, the posture um, is really dependent on, on credibility on two fronts, isn't it? It's dependent on a political credibility that we actually would defend one another, that we have strong enough sets of common values, um, that we understand why we have to stick together. Uh, I think that's that's an element that I think is not totally, but, but to an extent missing in, in recent dialogue. That needs to be strengthened. Our whole concept of allies and why we're allies historically, culturally, philosophically, why we're allies is important. And of course it has to be backed up by sufficient military prowess. Now it's, it's nice that some of our European partners are introducing uh, higher levels of defence spending. When I was Defence Secretary and Robert Gates was, was US Sec Def, we used to do a, a double act uh, at NATO. Um, sometimes people do good cop, bad cop. We did bad cop and worse cop. Um, uh, complaining about our allies not spending sufficiently. That, that's improved a bit, but in some countries it's still woeful, to be frank. Um, and our adversaries look at uh, what we're spending um, and seeing whether it's credible that we genuinely have uh, a strong alliance. An alliance is more than, it's more than just your guns and tanks, it's also your belief systems. Um, we have to marry them together. And President Macron said um, one or two unflattering things about NATO uh, recently. Um, I took the generous interpretation that what he was looking for was a stronger NATO to confront Russia, not a more accommodating Russia, uh, uh, NATO 
to diminish tensions with Russia. Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me turn to Russia for a second while we're there, and I, we've got a real tour of issues that we need to get through. I, what I was surprised in the run-up to the December 12th UK general election, that there was a very important report uh, on Russian, potential Russian interference uh, inside the UK. Certainly the UK has seen where uh, the nerve agent Novichok killed a, a British citizen. Um, what is the, why was that report held? Are you concerned about continued Russian internal interference within the UK? The only thing I was surprised about was that anyone would be surprised that Russia would try to interfere um, in our electoral process. It interferes on a daily basis um, with individuals and institutions through cyber attacks in our country. Why would we find it remotely surprising that they would try to interfere one way or another in a democratic system that they themselves have no time for? Um, and if they are willing to send their henchmen to assassinate people on our sovereign territory, you know, why would we get ourselves you know, too, too much in a lather about a, a potential uh, intervention in our democratic process? So um, I'm, I can't answer because I wasn't part of that decision making. Um, but if the report turns out to say, you know, the Russians try to interfere in our democratic process, I'm not one of those who will fall over with surprise. One of the things that we follow very closely here at CSIS is uh, malign economic influence, illicit financing. Clearly, uh, the UK has uh, been working very hard to try to enhance transparency. Do you think this is an internal challenge? Uh, in many ways, it's easier for us to talk about tanks and airplanes and submarines. It's harder when that threat lives inside our own systems and finds its own protection. Is that another part of the uh, values-based strategy that you're talking yes, about? Yes, it's an ongoing challenge. Every time we find ways of making things more transparent or making things more difficult for those who will uh, undermine our legal processes, they will try harder to find loopholes. It will be an ongoing. It's not a, a process where you can say we've won. It will be a perpetual uh, battle in that space, as, as we'll get in cyberspace, as we'll get uh, in their attempt to influence the politics and direction of some of their neighbours. Um, what, what really does surprise me about the whole of the Russian debate is the way that the issues around the Ukraine are simply ignored by elements of the political debate in, uh, in Europe and to an extent in some parts of the United States. Um, that pretending that a threat is not there, pretending that an illegal occupation is not still taking place is not how to conduct foreign policy. Hope is not a good foreign policy. Uh, it's, 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 it's a triumph over experience. Would you uh, certainly encourage the UK to provide more lethal military assistance to Ukraine, potentially? One of the ceasefires, not a ceasefire, uh, either over the weekend, two Ukrainian soldiers were, were killed. This is still a hot live war with over 14,000 dead over a six-year period. Well, I think our, our best response is to continue to put pressure on Russia where Russia is more likely to respond um, to that. Um, but the warning signs are all there. I mean, what do we not notice about uh, the Georgian occupation, which we forget about, yeah. and we don't call it an occupation, although what else you call sovereign troops uh, from a, another country on your own territory that won't go away when you ask them, other than an occupation. Maybe I just got that dictionary definition of occupation wrong. Um, or what's going on in Ukraine. Um, it seems to me that people want Russia to be different from it is, and I want Russia to be different from it is. 
but wishing it wouldn't make it happen. So let me turn to, in our national security strategy, two near-peer near, uh, military competitors, Russia and, of course, China. You mentioned big UK decision about uh, allowing Huawei into non-core uh, communication. Uh, current uh, Defense Secretary Ben Wallace had some very strong comments, thinking that, it, we sh that the UK should not allow Huawei into this system. Tell me where you came out of that and put that decision in the context of global Britain. Sovereign countries make sovereign decisions, but this one was very much against some very strong rhetoric from the United States to say, don't do that, but you did it. So the decision that the cabinet took, which I was not a member of cabinet at that time, um, was based on the advice given by our uh, national security apparatus, uh, who said it was possible to allow um, why are we with mitigations into elements of the 5G system as long as it's not the core? There are a number of things on this. Uh, one is it requires primary legislation in the United Kingdom for it to happen, where elements around threshold and so on will have to be debated in Parliament. Ah, how do you think that debate will go? Well, I think that will depend on the level of information that members of Parliament have. And I think it's quite important that they take those decisions fully informed. And I'm afraid the era where politicians looked to their executive um, and their executives say, well, we've seen all the data, you simply have to take it on our word. The dossier uh, still haunts. The, 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 the D word, yeah. yeah. The DD, yeah. the two Ds um, are, are, are still there. Um, and so, so MPs will want to take that decision. Although I think that there's another element to it, which is I think that um, even if the United States believes that the UK does have the technical mitigations to be able to allow Huawei into the non-core activities, there will be an anxiety about other countries who don't have the same technical capabilities seeing it as a green light for them to proceed. And I think that's a very important policy uh, line that we need to delineate. We need to be saying that we take any decision that we take on the basis of Britain's national security, and other countries can't take their decisions on the basis of our capabilities only on their own. Did you take the, the US rhetorical threat of stopping uh, intelligence sharing should the UK allow Huawei into the system? Did you take that threat seriously? Did you caution colleagues that this could have serious ramifications on an essential part of our bilateral relationship? No, I think that there's a pretty vigorous debate going on between the US and the UK, but I think the relationship is so strong um, and so necessary uh, that it will continue. Our, our cooperation on intelligence, as you know, second to none in Massive. the world, um, and is vital for security in both directions. Um, people talk about, I mean, in the Brexit debate, there's been a lot of talk about the US-UK relationship and special relationship, and I think that we need to remember that the term special relationship was first coined by Winston Churchill in his speech in Fulton, Missouri, which is better remembered for coining the phrase Iron Curtain. Um, but that's when he talks about special relationship, and he did so as a hardened war leader who understood cooperation in military security and intelligence terms. I think only later on did it require, acquire this Disney-esque hue um, that it perhaps got in later time. It's a hard-headed relationship, and it's compounded by our economic relationship. The UK and the US, remember, have the strongest bilateral investment relationship on the planet. 
more than a trillion dollars invested in one another's economies. We need to work together um, in all areas of, of security, national security, but economic security too. So uh, that cooperation is no longer, I'm afraid, uh, an optional extra. I was surprised how much you dedicated uh, your opening your remarks to Iran. Um, I thought we'd spend a little more time maybe on China, uh, and I, I want to make sure I understood them correctly because it seemed to me you were you were expressing a discomfort, perhaps, that the UK position has been in close alignment with the EU three, with France, Germany, and the UK creating uh, INSTEX, which was a, a separate mechanism to make sure that humanitarian aid would not be impacted by U.S. sanctions. I sense that you weren't entirely supportive of that uh, position, that you were much more perhaps on the U.S. side of the equation of GS JCPOA. And so are you, do you support this EU3 mechanism, or are you cautioning well, against it? It's not exactly a state secret that um, I was never in favor of JCPOA. Um, I thought it was rushed. I thought that there was a potential to seek a grand bargain um, earlier on. I think it was pushed through too quickly to fit with the political timetable of the ending of the Obama administration. I, and I always thought it was flawed um, for a not commonly expressed reason in that there was never a mechanism, even with SPVs put in place, to enable Western companies to properly trade with Iran. And for me, that meant that sooner or later, Iran would cry foul. Even if it complied with its nuclear obligations, it would say that the West uh, pulled the fast one and was never able to deliver on the prosperity that was part, supposedly, of the JCPOA. So for that reason, um, I, I never thought it was, would be able to, to succeed. And of course, uh, Iran does claim that it never got the economic pluses, um, although it certainly got a lot of money that was released straight into the regime without any internal reforms being put in place. So I think we got the worst of both worlds, really, at JCPOA. We got a short-term uh, uh, compliance with, with the nuclear program. I, I don't dispute that. But I think that in isolation was not sufficiently uh, broad as a, as a strategic uh, aim. Um, and I think that, actually, when I saw um, Secretary of State Pompeo in London last week, I, I saw him at a public presentation. I thought he gave a very rational view as to why they needed to go through his 12 points. And as he said to the audience, if any of you dispute any of the 12 points, tell me now. And there was a loud silence. Um, and I think that that needs to be the starting point. Having an agreement with Iran that doesn't deal with its ballistic program, that doesn't deal with support for Hezbollah, that doesn't deal with the support for the global uh, drugs trade, that doesn't deal with uh, support for Hamas or, or the Houthis or the Assad regime is not going to succeed because it will still leave Iran in a position of destabilizing its neighbors, which, as I said, I think is now replaced uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict as the primary cause of instability in the Middle East. So uh, UK force posture in the Middle East, though, does certainly rely on a strong US presence there, whether it's uh, <clears throat> patrolling the Straits of Hormuz, the maritime patrols, even you know, force presence uh, in Syria and Iraq. How do you manage, perhaps some would argue, U.S. unpredictability, uh, changing of, of views about U.S. Force, force presence in Syria? Obviously, uh, the Soleimani assassination really challenged NATO training, and equip, uh, training missions in, in Iraq. How do you manage 
through that. You're trying to be a good, good ally, good global partner. But again, even current UK uh, government officials have, have expressed frustration that they cannot uh, predict and then rely upon what the US force posture is in the Middle East. Well, I think that our aim at the very least should be to not create more instability um, in the region. So predictability uh, with our allies is always preferable. But then we have a strong cooperation when it comes to maritime cooperation in the Strait of Hormuz, for example. And that's going to be a much longer term uh, operation than people seem to think because um, so much of global economic stability is dependent um, on that. When you think of the proportion of not just Chinese, which is always cited in Japanese, um, oil that goes through there, uh, a blockade of the Strait will go from being a regional security problem to a global economic problem within a relatively short time. It's the point I was making that um, you know, despite all the options that are still out there, um, we can no longer afford to say, well, it's a way over there because the effects will be you know, very rapid. And that we don't seem to have learned the lessons of recent times. Um, you know, the, uh, the way in which you got a ricochet of everything from 9-11 uh, globally, from the economic crisis globally, from SARS, now coronavirus, globally. How, often, how many lessons do we need that we've got a new level of interdependency that we have to try to manage better um, rather than simply pretend King Canute-like that we can control things that quite clearly are beyond uh, our immediate control, even if we want to have it. Let me turn to, um, to Africa. Certainly Europe is focusing now on uh, obviously migration crisis, but climate instability, conflict. The French have uh, developed the G5 Sahel uh, uh, proposition to help strengthen regional actors. Does the, should the UK see Africa as an opportunity, a trade opportunity? The Prime Minister just hosted African leaders. We know mm -hmm. DFID is very active, uh, but is it a security challenge to the UK? Um, it's a potential security challenge because if we don't get things right, um, we will create instability. You mentioned right at the beginning that there's a link between trade and security. and. Uh, I do apologize to my staff who are here who've heard this for the 50,000th time. Sorry. But, um, you know, trade is not an end in itself. It's a means by which we spread prosperity. And prosperity underpins social cohesion. Social cohesion underpins political stability. And political stability is the building block of our collective security. It's a continuum that you can't interrupt without unwanted consequences. And if you do, uh, try to become isolationist and protectionist. And you do make it more difficult for developing economies to share in the prosperity that we've taken for granted over the past generation or so. Don't be surprised if you get more radicalization. Don't be surprised if you get more mass migration because if you interrupt that economic progress, countries will rightly say, why is it these rich countries who, they them, who themselves benefited from an, uh, an open and free and liberal trading environment and have done very well for themselves, why are they pulling the ladder up behind them? And just to give you uh, an idea, this is a security rather than a trading environment, but in uh, the year 2010, the G20 countries were operating 300 non-tariff barriers to trade. By 20, 
15, they were operating 1,200 non-tariff barriers to trade. Developing countries are right to say, why is the G20 erecting barriers around itself and making it more difficult for us to share in the same prosperity? If that continues, it will have unavoidable consequences. So uh, uh, my view on, in, in terms of Africa, this is a very long answer to your question, That's all right. um, is, is that we have huge opportunities uh, by aligning our trading and our investment policy and now our freedom post-Brexit uh, to make a change. I'll give you a practical example. Um, if you want to export primary produce from Africa into Europe, you can do it tariff-free as long as you don't package or process your fish or roast your coffee beans. In fact, in 2015, Germany made more money out of African coffee than Africa did because the beans came in, but they were roasted, packaged, processed, and sold on in Germany, which added the value to it. Now, that cannot possibly be what we have ever intended. So what I think we need to do is look at our development policies, see if we can encourage outward uh, direct investment by our companies into areas that will add uh, value to primary produce, then use our tariff freedoms to take down the tariff barriers to value-added products from those developing countries. As I said to my colleague in DFID, that's our Department for International Development, when I was in trade, I said, my ultimate aim is to put you out of business uh, by ensuring that countries can trade their way out of poverty rather than depending on the largesse of rich Western countries. Um, and that's what our policy aim should be. Now, you mentioned climate change. There's a, there's a big, big element in this. And I've argued in the UK that we should bring our Department for International Development inside our foreign office. Um, to have, first of all, a single foreign policy. But also, if we're not careful, we'll be funding policies that are counter to some of our national aims. Um, climate change is one. We're encouraging economic development. But if we make it so that these countries who are developing can't afford access to clean energy generation, they will turn to coal and they'll turn to China to build their coal-fired coal power stations for them. Not only does that put them and us um, or at a strategic disadvantage, but it means that they will utterly undermine all the climate change objectives that we've had. Um, and to put that, just to give you, again, perspective on that, since 1990, America has only increased CO2 by 0.4%. In Britain, we've reduced it by 22.6%. China's increased it by 359.6%. What is the point of us having these climate change objectives in Western countries but then our secondary policy objectives lead to an undermining of our own activities. We have got to try to bring our strategic aims into alignment. And to that, we have to have the governmental structures that allow that to happen. Um, I know we're talking about foreign security policy, but before I unleash this audience upon you, I'm going to ask you a trade question because you are at the center of this. Um, it looks to me that we are going to have a pretty significant divergence between the European Union and the UK. That was sort of clear from the Prime Minister's perspectives here. Um, so is this going to look like a Canada free trade agreement, an Australia free trade agreement? I want you to put the crystal ball on the table. And we're December of this year. What will this relationship look like? And then please pontificate on what you think the US-UK uh, free trade uh, agreement, if that is able to be produced this year, what does that look like? Easy questions. And then so, I'll let the so audience how, come in. How long have you got for Yeah, yeah, we got um, a little bit. Just a little bit. So 
Uh, what should it be? We should probably think of Canada Plus, um, given that we have got a closer, tra a closer trading relationship with Europe than, uh, than, than Canada does. Uh, so I would break it into a number of elements if I were advising. Yes, um, we'd like you to advise. Like I was last week in Geneva. <laughs> um, I would say look at the different elements of a potential agreement. You've got financial services where we acceptance of the concept of equivalence. So I would say that's doable. On other elements of uh, service regulation, we have accepted that we will have separate regulatory regimes. So that probably is doable, although there are at the margin some elements in there that will be relatively um, politically challenging. Mm. We have already said in the political declaration we want no tariffs or fees or quotas. Now, that's something that normally takes up a great deal of time in a trade agreement. So if we've already got zero and we want to get to zero, that should be something that's, that's time-saving for us. Where are the uh, more difficult elements? Well, they all fall within the political realm rather than the technical realm. Um, fisheries will be a politically explosive issue, uh, but we expect that it always has been um, uh, in, in uh, European politics. Card wars come to mind. Um, and you ask our fishermen what they think about Britain entering the EU in the first place, and they'll give you very yes. standard answers. Um, not necessarily um, repeatable in an audience like this. Um, the, uh, so then you've got the, the, the two most difficult elements. You've got uh, regulatory alignment on goods, and uh, we may decide to disalign slowly, or we may dis decide to disalign very little. The point is that the price for disalignment has to be paid up front in the agreement um, to give us the ability, when we think it's in our national interest, to set that out, although there's also an intellectual debate to be had about the European Union and its insistence on harmonization, i.e. a very legalistic and regulatory uh, view of trade, um, and what the rest of the world is developing, which is the concept of equivalence. Yes, we agree we need to get to similar places, but we want to find different ways of getting there. That's, that's, that's a, a bigger debate. The one that has come out over the weekend is this concept of so-called level playing field. Now, level playing field was in the political declaration. It's a fabulous phrase because it means pretty much to everybody what they want it to mean for themselves. But when we get into the discussions, it's very clear um, that what the European Union wants is that Britain won't undermine our current environmental rules or our labor market rules to give ourselves a competitive advantage. Now, in most trade agreements, including Canada, that's written in, um, that you'll have non-regression uh, elements in those. Uh, but there's a little phrase at the end that says, and relevant tax matters. The word there being relevant that's likely to be controversial. Because what the EU regards as the relevant tax freedoms and what we regard as the relevant tax freedoms may not be the same things. Um, we do not want to be involved in, a, in a, an agreement with the European Union that says um, the price of access to the European market will be a diminution of your ability to become more competitive in the rest of global markets. Remember, in the year 2006, uh, the European Union uh, accounted for 56% of UK exports. Last year, it was 44%. Um, the rest of the world is growing much faster than the European market. And while we want to get good access to 
the European market, we mustn't do anything that ties our hands in improving our competitiveness and our access to the, that faster growing bit of the global economy. US, UK? But again, there's a, there's a great appetite. With all trade agreements, um, speed uh, is really dependent on your level of ambition. You can get a trade agreement quickly if you make the objectives of it relatively modest. If you want to move to a, a gold standard free trade agreement, which will necessarily then include services, you have the slight complication with the United States that the federal government doesn't control a lot of the non-tariff barriers. They lie at the state. level of state government. Um, we got one agreement uh, while I was trade secretary with the uh, Institute for Chartered Accountants of Scotland, which gave them equivalence of, of uh, professional regulation, uh, recognition of professional regulation in, in all the states. It took us quite a while to get 50 states to agree to one regulatory change. If you want a gold standard FTA that covers a whole panoply uh, of services, you either take a long time and do it at the federal level, or you get a federal agreement and then you unlock those state level um, where, where it's necessary. And as I keep pointing out to my colleagues, I do wish they'd stop talking about the United States as though it's a homogeneous unit. Um, four of the states would be in the G20 if they were independent nations. In fact, six would be in the G22 if there was such a thing. Um, and it's time that we understood uh, the size of the market access uh, issues in relation and the potential that comes out of understanding better how the states regulate um, their markets. Fantastic. I know there are many questions in the audience. If you could please raise your hand. We're going to bundle some questions if, so you can you identify yourself and be very brief with your question. I, I ran over a little bit. I had too many questions for I, I you. I talked too much. No, no, no. You were great. Uh, so why don't we just, we'll start uh, Dina down this way, or Donna, and then we'll just start right here. Thank you so much. And sometimes you have to speak very clearly into the microphone. Sure. Thank you. Uh, Austin Doler, uh, Penn Bind Center. Of course, you talked a lot about NATO, and as, I'm, as you're well aware, with the UK leaving, around 80% of NATO expenditures are now going to be from non-EU member states. Do you think this might result in renewed talks, maybe some actual action on a some sort of common EU defense force? Or do you think that's mostly blustered? They don't have the necessarily, necessary uh, political action motivations within the EU? Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. We'll just, pat, we'll just take a few. We'll pass that back down. Thank you. Um, good afternoon. Alice Panier. I'm an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins SAIS. Um, you were one of the architects of the Lancaster House treaties with France in 2010. The treaties are reaching their 10th anniversary at the end of this year, and I was wondering where do you see that relationship going? Yeah. Thank you. Super. Take, we'll take two more down there, and then I'll, I'll bundle them. So we'll... uh, uh, Doug Kinhan from Radio Free Asia. Um, I want to ask about your view on the current impasse between U.S. and North Korea, the negotiation. And they, they have been negotiating for a while, but uh, since last year, their negotiation is, doesn't seem to be going far away. And uh, what's the U.K.'s view on this current impasse? And recently, China and Russia uh, at the U.N. Security Council demanded the sanction relief on North Korea. What's the U.K.'s view on this? If you could answer. Thank you. Thank I think you. we'll take one more back. Um, yes, 
Hi, I'm from Ukrainian Embassy. Uh, I'm, I'll tr try to make it short and simple. So I'm really interested uh, about the new possible defense initiatives now that the Brexit is in place. Obviously, uh, Great Britain will have its hands untied for the uh, possible regional defense initiatives, kind of like the free seas that we can see right now in my region. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to sum up. So, uh, sort of as yeah. a common European defense identity, the 10th anniversary of the Lancaster House, France, UK, bilateral cooperation, North Korea, a little concerned about China and Russia, air operations over the Korean Peninsula last year, and any new ideas in strengthening Ukraine and their defense and security sector. Okay, I mean... Just quick. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. So, in terms of the EU defense, uh, an EU defense force, Remember that Britain and France combined are more than 50% of continental European defence spending and two-thirds of continental European research and development in defence. You, you take Britain out of that equation, uh, you get a big change in dynamic. Our commitment has always primarily been to NATO. And as Defence Secretary before and, af and before and after, I always thought that the European Defence Force um, was, was actually quite a dangerous concept because it did not depend on additionality of funding. In fact, no one was providing extra money for the European identity, and it always meant there was a strong possibility of diversion or duplication or both. I think that the European defence concept hasn't produced a bullet, a plane, a tank or a ship. Um, I think it's always been potentially uh, weakening to NATO, um, and I think that the best thing that European countries could do is to meet the NATO spending requirement and to concentrate um, on the NATO uh, uh, alliance as the best and proven uh, strategic uh, security arrangement that we have. And I, I never really took um, that seriously because only Britain and France really have the, the, the level of, uh, uh, I think, of military capability. Um, and more than that, willingness to deploy. It's having the capability is one thing, the, will, the willingness to deploy is another. Which is why we were very keen on the uh, Lancaster House agreements with, with France. Um, uh, I, I take the view, going back to a point I made earlier, that an era, in an era of globalization, where threats will come at us in different ways um, uh, and from different places than before, what we needed was a range of levers. So uh, we needed to be able to, to utilize different um, elements. It was NATO itself, but within NATO, there were some uh, bilateral partnerships that, that could also be utilized. Um, and I thought, uh, in particular, the second of those treaties, the nuclear treaty, um, is of huge importance to both the UK and to France. It actually makes our nuclear deterrence uh, both testable and, to a large degree, more affordable. And so uh, those treaties, um, should continue um, uh, and uh, when necessary become uh, renewed. Uh, and I think it was a great achievement of the uh, David Cameron government uh, and the Sarkozy government to, to, to get that. And I hope as we leave the EU um, that we can use that relationship um, as a very strong bilateral link uh, with our neighbors in France. Uh, in terms of uh, North Korea, am I surprised that not much progress has been made? No. Uh, I'm not surprised. Uh, and when you're dealing with a totalitarian regime, quite as 
unpredictable, eccentric uh, as the North Korean regime. Please don't anyone be surprised uh, if there isn't uh, much headway made uh, in the future. And just not to disappoint you, um, as we leave the European Union, um, we're not looking for new security arrangements. We're looking to strengthen the one that we've got, the one that has kept the peace in Europe since World War II, the one that's held the Soviet Union and then Russia at bay. We want a strengthening of NATO. What we want to see is uh, a, a maturing of, of NATO to take advantage of new threat environments um, and new political realities. Uh, in, at our, in the Cold War, at our best, we understood them simultaneously. Um, and my final thought on that is that we should just remember that the Cold War didn't end. The Cold War was won. And it was won because we had a stronger economy, because we had a stronger military, and ultimately we had a better destination for our people than, than the Soviet Union could ever have. Um, the ultimate test is, um, who do you think has got the better future for the people? Well, why do we open our borders and see which direction the flow comes in? And it was quite clear what direction the flow would be then. I think it was one of the great achievements of the European Union, was providing a political destination uh, um, for a lot of the Soviet bloc countries in the way that NATO provided the security uh, apparatus for that. Um, but we already have the building blocks, which is where my difference with the European Union was. We don't need more uh, um, types of political constructs. We need to make the ones that we have work better for us. Dr. Dane Fox, thank you so much. We went around the world and we even hit trade. Uh, a conversation with you is always fascinating, rich with details, and uh, Thank you so much for helping us understand global Britain and a strength in NATO. With your applause, please join me in thanking Dr. Liam Fox. Thanks, Thanks.